Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, I mentioned in the first hour what I'll mention here, which is that everything that's been done so far this morning is sacred. Anytime God's people do a thing for his glory, it's a sacred thing. And it's been an encouragement to, to be part of that and uh, to be encouraged by it this morning. We continue to do sacred things as we enter into the text of God's word. I invite you to join me in Hebrews chapter 11. And the question this morning is, what is the end game of Christian education? And what I'd like you to do is to place that question into whatever context um, is most fitting for you. Uh, clearly, what's, what's being highlighted today is Delaware Christian School, and that is a context for Christian education. So is uh, our church, and many others like it, that seek to educate people of all ages in God's Word. Same is true for any of our homes. Uh, if a Christian parent is coming alongside their child or a grandparent or grandchild instructing them in God's Word, that is Christian education, in the same way that a family that chooses to homeschool in light of what um, God's Word has to say and raise their children in that. So what is the end game? of Christian education, or what do we hope it would look like when one arrives there? To know, uh, first we want to de define that term. <clears throat> when you research the word endgame, you arrive very quickly at the game of chess. Uh, I, I am not <clears throat> very familiar with chess. I've tried to play with a couple people over the years, and usually after a round or two, I get a nice pat on the back with the words, well, it's not for everybody. And that may be true, but it is still a goal of mine to attempt to learn the game and play it and perhaps teach my children the same. There are things about the game that fascinate me, including terms like this. Cambridge Dictionary defines endgame this way. It is the last stage in a game of chess when only a few pieces, a uh, few of the pieces are, are left on the board. I actually like the be uh, what I think is a better definition or a more applicable one in our case this morning. It comes from the Urban Dictionary of all places says, it is the ultimate agenda or desired consequence of a planned series of events, often elaborate and unknown to outsiders. In a game of chess, what's not uncommon is that when the end game, you know, when you arrive at the end game, one player saw it coming, the other did not. And usually the one that saw it coming is about to win and the other person has realized this. There's only a few pieces left on the board, only a couple remaining moves to make. Our lives can operate the same way. The time will come for each of us when the end game has come. There's only a few remaining pieces on the board, only a couple last moves to make, and they're gonna be important and highly consequential decisions. So if we place it within the context of Christian education, then it could be thought of this way. What do we hope will be true of a person 
We educate in God's word when the end game comes for them. What do we hope will be true about that person? So whether we're an adult in this room or a child, this question is still important. And I believe we can arrive at a very good answer to that question um, in Hebrews chapter 11, where I've invited you to join me this morning. The scripture that you heard read by one of our seniors was Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And you'll notice that the very first word is therefore. That word harkens us back to something that's just been said. And that's Hebrews chapter 11, which also helps us answer the question, who are the cloud of witnesses? I've heard that phrase often misunderstood and misinterpreted, usually because there is a neglect of the preceding chapter. But the preceding chapter makes it very clear that the cloud of witnesses are the names of those that we'll be hearing about this morning as we work through Hebrews chapter 11. And in, it's in light of their testimony that we run the race we've been given. What can we learn from their testimony and how can they answer this question this morning, I think will be seen very clearly as we work through it. In verses 1 to 7, we read this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, by this faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. When a Christian arrives in the end game. I believe that first and foremost, that end game ought to look like for them that they are a person of faith in God. Faith in God. Faith is a term that the Bible, I believe, the Bible clearly defines for us, but for some reason has often been confused with many other things over the years. There's an article that I read uh, a little while ago now written by Pastor Alistair Begg, and I would commend this to you. We don't have time to look through it this, or to read it extensively this morning, but the title of the article is, What is Faith and What It's Not? What is Faith and What It's Not? I'd encourage you to uh, look that up on your own time. But in that article, I believe he accurately summarizes, based on biblical teaching, those two questions. What faith is not? Faith is not a religious feeling. Now, feelings, emotions, are created by God and certainly ought to be produced or impacted by our faith. But 
our faith is not ultimately a feeling. You are not a Christian just because you feel like one. There's much more to it than that. And aren't you thankful? I, I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I didn't feel much like a Christian. I'm personally thankful that that's not all that there is to it. It's secondly, not accepting something without evidence. And I can't, I can't even, I don't have the time to make a case for why I believe this is one of our critical issues today as it relates to the next generation and why it also uh, hits on, I believe, a critical mistake that many churches have made. Faith, biblical Christian faith, does not require that one separates their mind from the equation. It is not believing in something when common sense tells you not to. Christian biblical faith requires the use of one's mind. And it does not demand that we accept everything the Bible teaches without a shred of evidence. That couldn't be any further from the truth. In fact, the Christian faith is the most evidence-based faith on earth. It has been substantiated over and over again, even in the ground. The Christian faith is an evidence-based faith. Thirdly, it's not a positive mental attitude. In that article by Alistair Begg, he uh, references this self-help guru who encourages his readers and followers to wake up every morning and say the same thing three times every day, I believe, I believe, I believe. That's it. Believe in what? We don't know. And he doesn't know, and he says it doesn't matter as long as you believe it. Everybody, that is not Christian faith. It's not simply a positive mental attitude. What is it? This is not original to Pastor Begg. Many others have described it this way, and he does as well. It is first knowledge. That the Bible even says, faith comes by what? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Knowledge is certainly a component. Faith is no less than this. It's more, but it's no less than knowledge. Things must be learned. Number two, assent. Another way to understand assent is agreement in your heart. So the knowledge you've been given, Paul says, by both God's Word and His created universe, His Word being special revelation, His created universe being general revelation, we take that knowledge and come to an agreement on it in our heart. That's assent. It's got to make its way. And then thirdly, it's trust. Because I know what I know, and I believe, I agree in my heart that it's true, I will trust in God. That is Christian biblical faith. And the Bible maps this out multiple times. And it's that concept that needs to be rooted in our minds as we hear from each of these people's testimony this morning. When it says by faith, it's this. It was their knowledge that they agreed on in their hearts and they lived in trust in God. That is faith. Let's move on. Verses 8 to 12. 
By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Secondly, in the end game, the outcome of Christian education, the hope is that they are a person who is obedient to God. Obedient. An obedience grounded in a, in a result of their faith. Isn't it interesting that Sarah is mentioned here? Uh, just as a side note, I think we need to be very careful and very humble and balanced when we speak of many of those that are mentioned in Scripture. Now, because I think we haven't many times, the first thing that comes to many people's minds when you hear about Sarah from the Old Testament is that in response to being promised that she would have a child, she laughed. Yet she's here. She may have laughed, but she believed. She also believed. And I think this is critical, especially when we think of any potential outreach, perhaps, to an Orthodox Jew... When we hyper-focus on the flaws of all these people without spotlighting the strength of their faith, we burn our bridges with them. They are people that they revere. These are people that they revere. And honestly, we ought to also. Their faith was magnificent. Were they flawed? Absolutely. Were they broken people? Certainly. Was their faith strong? Yes, it was. And so we should treat it as such. On this note, Elizabeth Elliot said, God is God. Because he is God, he is worthy of my trust and obedience. I will find rest nowhere but in his holy will that is unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. And those of us who are older probably know this quite well. Those of us who are younger probably have some shock coming to you. The truth is, there are going to be many times, and are many times in our lives, where we have no idea what God is doing. None. No clue whatsoever. We don't understand it. We don't see the whole picture. And oftentimes, that can, that can cause us to be frustrated. But Christian faith will produce an obedience to Him even when we don't have all the answers. Because we trust Him. I don't see it. I don't understand it. But I'm going to trust you here. That seems to be what Sarah did. That certainly appears to be what Abraham did when he left everything he knew to go to a place that he didn't know for sure he would ever see. He obeyed. Verses 13 to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. 
If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Thirdly, in the end game, the outcome of Christian education ought to be a person who shares the values of God. Their value system is his value system. And that was Abraham's calculation. In the ESV study Bible, which I recommend to anyone who asks about a good study Bible, they note this. If Abraham were looking for an earthly homeland, he could have returned to Haran. But he persisted in following God's leading and focusing on his promise. Why? Because that's not what he was looking for. He was looking for, he was in pursuit for a land being prepared by God. And that was not the one he left. His values were becoming God's values. And by the way, what was true of him would be true of any of us who take on God's values as our own. We and he look very different to everyone else. And their minds will be boggled as to why they're doing what they're doing. When Abraham left, the kind of life he had, and presumably the kind of wealth he probably had behind, much of it, family, connections, influence, that was probably baffling to people who saw it taking place. Maybe thinking he had lost his mind. It was just a shift in values. That's all it was. He began to value the things of God more than the things of this world. Jesus speaks to this. Matthew 6, 33, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In that sermon, he's laying out the values of the kingdom. Very countercultural, very radical for the time, and calling people to live by them. And when he starts getting to the pinnacle of that message, right in the middle of it, he says, this is what you need to seek. This is what you need to live for. And that's exactly what Abraham was striving to do. To seek the kingdom of God. To live according to the values of God. Verses 17 to 22. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Pause there. You're in the Old Testament. You're reading about this account of Abraham. You get to the point where he's, he, he's, he drew the knife to kill his own son. And you're wondering, what's going on in this man's mind? Now, frustratingly, the Bible doesn't always get, answer that question. But it did here. Look at the very next statement. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In other words, Abraham, as he draws the knife to kill his own son, is thinking, I don't know for sure if God will raise my son back from the dead, but I believe he can. And this is so important, because even back in the life of Abraham, before the nation of Israel was established, before there was ever a kingdom of Israel, and certainly before Jesus would come in flesh and blood to this earth, one of the critical features of the Christian faith was belief in the resurrection power of God. What we have today as Christians is a faith that is identical 
to the faith that Abraham had. Isn't that amazing? We believe the same. Fundamentally, that's what our faith is. Believing that God raised Jesus from the dead. That Jesus conquered death. Belief that as God, he had resurrection power. Without that, Paul says, we are of most people to be pitied in this world, if that's not true. Abraham believed it, and so do we. So what does this mean? It gives us hope. In that end game, with a few remaining moves to make, everything's off the table except for a few last pieces to use. The outcome of Christian education in the life of a person ought to be demonstrated in the hope that they have from God. What is hope? A short way to, 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 to define it is a confident expectation of a future reality. A confident expectation of a future reality. That's what these people had. It, it goes on in verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Other translations say leaning on his staff. That, I'll get to that in a minute. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Why? Because they all had hope. They had hope that this was not it. That there was more for God to do, and he was going to do it. They believed it with everything they had. They had hope. It's, I, I love that note about uh, uh, Jacob and his staff, right? Because that goes back to the account where Jacob wrestled with, he either wrestled with an angel of the Lord or he, he wrestled with like what's, what's understood as maybe even a pre-incarnate Jesus. I don't know, but it was a battle for the ages. Now, it, was it really a battle? No, because he could have been defeated before the first move was even made. But it's still a fascinating account that here he is getting every, giving everything he has because he so wants the promises of God to be true in his life and, and God puts his hip out of joint and never allows it to be healed. For the rest of his life, he would lean on that staff and remember God keeps his word. Do not question the faithfulness of God. Hope. That staff wasn't just a reminder of his infirmity. It was, it was a physical, tangible symbol of his hope. That God keeps his word. Joseph, the same way. Could you imagine? This was well before the exodus would take place. The writer of Hebrews said he was confident that it would happen because of the promise given to Abraham. The future destiny of his people did not lie in Egypt. It was elsewhere. And that would mean God would get his people out of Egypt at some point. He was so certain of this, his expectation so confident that he said, do not leave my bones in this place. You see it? Why? Because he had hope that the day would come that they would take his box of bones out of Egypt. And did they? Yes, they did. Hope. Hope's a wonderful thing. It's also a, a term that's been made synonymous with things that doesn't make sense and, and, and has, has been described in ways it shouldn't be described. The Bible informs us as to what this hope is. John Piper says, Biblical hope is not finger-crossing. It is a confident expectation of good things to come. It's not, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. It's no, it's, I know God's going to do this. I know it. That's hope. In Romans 5, Paul elaborates on this concept. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Why would we do that? Because we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. It's not going to disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul also says in one of his letters that, that when, when people we love die, we grieve. We grieve that, but we grieve as those with hope, not as those without hope. The last pastor I served with before coming here, Pastor Gowdy, still serving faithfully at Temple Baptist Church in Portsmouth, Ohio, has now done well north of 400 funerals in his life. And he can, tell, he can, he can describe to you and did for me the stark difference when at one point he's in a room with people who have this faith in God and they're, they, they're, they're with a loved one who's about to die, they also have a clear, vibrant, sincere faith in God and they die. And in that room there is mourning. But the way, the way he described it is, it is it is a hope-filled grief. It hurts, but we're going to see him. We're going to see him again. We know that. We have a hope here. This is not the end. And then you compare that to rooms he's been in where there might be some believers in the room, some Christians in the room, but the person who died had no profession of faith, never talked about it, no, no evidence-based reason to believe that they knew Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they die, that that, that grief that takes place in that room is despair and terror. What just happened to this person? We don't know. Aren't you thankful for hope? And it ought to be demonstrated in the life of a person who is educated in our faith. Verses 23 to 31. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. The, the order was to kill all these young boys, right? By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Again, like, just think of this man for a second. Did he have his flaws? Yes. But how many of us could say the same is true about us? He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Oh, if that were more true of me. What an amazing testimony of faith. And then keep going, verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ, the, quote, shame of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, by that faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Do you, do you hear what's being, like, sometimes it's hard to wrap my mind around this, that, that Moses, right, thousands of years before Jesus of Nazareth would appear on the scene, the writer of Hebrews says that he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. What was the object of his faith? Christ, the Messiah. And I will gladly bear the shame of that person over the treasures of Egypt any day. And so he left, and he took his people with him. 
What an amazing testimony of faith. But it also was a risk. In the end game of our life, the outcome of Christian education ought to be a people who are willing to risk everything for God. Just like Abraham did. Just like Noah did. Just like Jacob and Isaac did. Just like Joseph and Moses did. Risk. Are we willing to risk our job? Are we willing to risk our, a pay raise? Are we willing to risk a promotion? Willing to risk a relationship? Am I willing to risk these things? Because I would rather be identified as a Jesus follower than anything else. So do to me what you must. That's the exchange. On this note, Alistair Begg says this, Pleasures are certainly better than afflictions, according to any ordinary judgment, but Moses came to this conclusion. Although affliction might be God's worst, it was better than the pleasures of sin, which is evil's best. Moses counted reproach to be better than the treasures of Egypt. God's fast is better than Egypt's feast. We should view life as Moses did, in connection with the reward, and commence a life for God in holiness. Moses had faith in God. That faith produced obedience to God. And then he shared the values of God, and from God he received a hope that there was a reward down the road, that God would keep his word to his people. And based on that, he took risks. He took risks. Would you agree? Do you see this in your own life? Would you be able to honestly say, could I honestly say that God's fast for me is better than Egypt's feast? That being hungry as part of God's plan for my life is going to be far better than being filled by the world. How many of us are willing to say that and to take those kinds of risks? Verses 32 to 40. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy." Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The plan would not be completed. God had more to do. You know, this is such a great passage because... You know, if you read the whole thing, then it really makes you wonder how some self-described pastors can lead people to believe that to be a Christian means life will be pleasurable and prosperous. That evidently is not the case for many. And it may not be what God has in store for you or for me. Which is why 
The final trait is surrender. Are we surrendered? God, take what you must. My life, if necessary. I believe in the end game. That is what God desires to be present in our life. There's only a few moves left to make. I'll give my life if I have to. They did. So many of them. And though they're dead, they cry out to us through their testimony of faith. There's a song that I've been um, introduced to just recently, and it's been on my mind a lot. It says, Were creation suddenly articulate with a thousand tongues to lift one cry, then from north to south and east to west, we'd hear Christ be magnified. Were the whole earth echoing his eminence, his name would burst from sea and sky, from rivers to the mountaintops, we'd hear Christ be magnified. When every creature finds its inmost melody and every human heart its native cry, then in one enraptured hymn of praise we'll sing, Christ be magnified. Oh, be lifted high, Jesus. I won't bow to idols. I'll stand strong and worship you. And if it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there too. I won't be formed by feelings. I'll hold fast to what is true. If the cross brings transformation, then I'll be crucified with you because death is just the doorway into resurrection life. And if I join you in your suffering, then I'll join you when you rise. And when you return in glory with all the angels and the saints, my heart will still be singing. My song will be the same. Oh, Christ, be magnified. Let his praise arise. Christ, be magnified in me. Surrender. And if it means death, so be it. Because that death is just a pass into something better. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? They did. There might be some of you here today thinking about these things, thinking about your own context for Christian education, whether it's what's taking place in your life, which should be true of us all, we should continue to be educated in the faith, whether that be the work you're doing with your children simply because you're part of a family or because of something like your homeschool, whether it's when you've partnered with a place like Delaware Christian School in Christian education of children, with your local church, whatever the case may be, you might be sitting here thinking through these things and saying, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where to begin. Begin with Hebrews 11. Read of these people. We didn't have time today. We did none of them justice. But the writer of Hebrews assumes we know these stories well. Revisit them. Learn from their example. Were they flawed? Yes, so are we. But was their faith strong? You better believe it. Have a strategy. Have a strategy to educate others in the faith. Your children, your grandchildren, your spouse with one another, attending a Sunday school class, whatever it may be, have a strategy. 
go back to the game of chess where we started. Chess Grandmaster Savielli Tartakauer said, tactics is knowing what to do when there is nothing to do, when, when there is something to do. Strategy is knowing what to do when there is nothing to do. God's word can help you build a strategy. And when you find your t yourself, and you will, and for many of you this has happened multiple times, and maybe it's in relation to your children or grandchildren, your whatever the context is, you get into that situation and, like humanly speaking, have no idea what to do here. God does. God knows exactly what to do here. And if you're building your strategy around the truth of his word, so will you. His words are available to you any moment. And if that's you this morning, and you don't know where to start, start with his word. Start with his word. It will show you the way. There might be others of you sitting here thinking, my goodness, my children are teenagers now. We really haven't been intentional about educating them for this kind of outcome. I mean, think about it. Faith in God, obedience to God, the values of God, hope from God, risk for God, surrender to God. Oh, my goodness. Like, we're, are, we're, we're, late, we're late in the game here, right? We're behind the eight ball. Some of you might be feeling that way. Well, chess grandmaster Edmar Mendes said, after a bad opening, there is hope for the middle game. And after a bad middle game, there is hope for the end game. But once you're in the end game, the moment of truth has arrived. Listen, if you're, if you're here and you're drawing breath, chances are the end game hasn't quite come yet. You could start today. There's hope there. Take the next right step. Make the next right choice. If you haven't been intentional about educating your children, grandchildren this way, again, whatever your context is, yourself, being educated in God's word, if you haven't been intentional about it, if these aren't the objectives, if this hasn't been your mission, you could start today. I, I realized in spending time studying this text and preparing for today that uh, soon I'll be finishing my eighth year here at Delaware Bible Church, and <clears throat> It occurred to me that I don't know that I've ever shared about my experience attending a Christian school. And I want to make very clear that is not because I am ashamed of it. I am very grateful to have had that. Let me explain a couple things. Some of you know this already. When I was eight, my father left my family. And because of that, and because my mom, her primary job was working as a Christian school teacher, she taught music, speech, and drama, often would have to take on a second or third job. Homeschool was not going to happen. Not for my family. We had two options. Christian school, public school. There's no way we were going to afford Christian school. And so really just one option, humanly speaking, and that was public school. But my school, my Christian school, where my mom worked, while they couldn't pay her much, they generously gifted their teachers free tuition for their children. Because of that generous gift, 
I was able to be there. And I'm so thankful that's the case. And when I think back about my time, I went there my whole life growing up. Um, I think most about the people who served there alongside my mom who poured into my life. Because they loved God, they loved me. I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for, first of all, the investment from my mom. If you ask me what my favorite classes were, music, speech, and drama. I wouldn't be here without her. I was going to try not to get emotional about this because I did first hour and I don't want this to seem contrived, but it's happening again. Everybody, I have had the privilege to teach my children some songs based on scripture. They've come to love them, as I have. I didn't learn those songs from my pastor or my Bible teacher. I learned them from my math teacher who insisted that every day before class began, we would sing a song based on the word of God. Some of the best devotions I had in high school came from my English teacher who refused to study any other book until we first consulted the greatest book. My Bible teacher was one of the most formative people in my life at a time where I was wondering if ministry was for me. And as a young man without a dad at home, there was a man there who poured into my life and loved me like a son. And it was my athletic director. I was surrounded by people who loved me out of their love for God. I'm also here because of them. And I'm not speaking on behalf of the administration of Delaware Christian School. I'm speaking on my own behalf when I say this. I believe that the value of a Christian school is not its academic excellence. Should we be academically excellent? Yes, because we serve an excellent God. It's also not our athletic excellence. Should we strive to be athletically excellent? Yes, because we play for an excellent God. But the value of a Christian school are the intangibles that I've just shared with you. Not the diplomas, not the scholarships, not the lesson plans. It's God's love being freely shared with people like me who desperately needed it in some very difficult times in my life. Sweet, sweet people. Were they perfect? No. They were broken like me. But they were willing to serve 
in their brokenness to reach into mine. One more, and then I'll be done. I'm sure much of what I know about history came from my history teacher, but I can't tell you a single historical fact I distinctly remember getting from him. Here's what I do remember about Mr. Keith, who's, who's now with the Lord. He loved yellow, literally. He wore it every day, literally. I often like to think that he was a subtle inspiration for the man in the yellow hat from Curious George. <laughs> does such a person like that exist? Yes, indeed, it does. And it was Mr. Keith. He loved Lucille Ball. And he loved me. Often one of the first to arrive and often one of the last to leave. Mr. Keith poured every ounce of himself into his students. Because the love of God was abundantly flowing in his life. And I must confess that I did not take the opportunity while he was here to thank him for that. But I stand before you as one who has hope that because he knew the Lord, I will see him again and I will tell him what he deserved to hear while he was with me, that his investment in my life was profound. And thank you. That's the value of a Christian school. And for me, because people were willing to invest in it, I'm here. And as far as I'm concerned, it was worth everything they gave. And because of them, I hope when the end game comes in my life, I can demonstrate each of these qualities because I will be able to stand on their shoulders as they did the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for your word and its truth. Thank you for its encouragement and challenge and conviction. God, I pray that through your spirit you would work in our hearts and minds and in, which, in whatever way we find ourselves being educated in the faith, in whatever way we are attempting to educate others in the faith. God, may the qualities described by the testimony of these people be the objectives that we aim for. And may these things be true of us when the end game comes in our own life when there are only a few pieces on the board left, only a few last moves to make, may we be a people with faith in you, who have lived obediently to you, who shared your values, who lived with hope that came only from you, who took risks for you and lived a life of surrender to you. May this be true of us through your gracious work in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.